Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Nir Ayal. So Nir has a really fascinating story. Several years ago, he wrote a book called Hooked, and he's a behavioral economist and a product designer who was working with entrepreneurs and tech companies to help them make their products more viral, more sticky, get more users to actually engage with what they were building. And he was really, really freaking good at his job. And so now we are starting to really see the effects of these platforms that are just sucking us in and that are so addictive that we can't put our phone down, that we can't get off social media. And so as a counterbalance to what he has seen, he's now written the second book called Indistractable. And Indistractable is all about how we can reclaim our attention and choose the life that we want. And I must say that of all the guests that I've had on so far, Nir is so tight with his sound bites, with practical advice in terms of what are the things that we can do to rearrange our phone, understanding what questions to ask ourselves when we become distracted so that we can take more control of where we are putting our attention, what we are prioritizing, and ultimately what we do with our lives. So without further ado, here is Nir Ayal. All right, I'm sitting here with Nir Ayal. Nir, how are we doing? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. We're just remembering that we were actually introduced two years ago, and now we're finally making it happen. So That's very right. excited to have you in New York over from SF. Great to be here. It's been awesome. Very cool. So uh, today, you know, we're, we're here to talk about big ideas, of which you, uh, you have many, but there's one that you've been spending a lot of your time on most recently. And so if I were just to ask you the question, what is the big idea that you wish more people could integrate into their lives right now? What would that be? The big idea is that you have more control over your attention and your life than you may think. That the narrative that a lot of people believe, including myself up until I did this research, is that technology is hijacking our brains and that we're getting distracted because of all of these pings, dings, rings, and things that, that pull us off course. And that was definitely my opinion. And then the more I studied the psychology of distraction, the more I learned that I had fallen into the rut of behaviors that actually caused me to do things that these tech companies wanted me to do. <laughs> can you say In, that? Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Fallen into the rut of the behaviors that these companies wanted me right. to do. Right. So let me back up a little bit. So I uh, wrote a book a few years ago, about five years ago now, called Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and the book was this. Uh, inquiry into how do products like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, all of these products, how do they get, how do they change user behavior? How do they create user habits? And at the time, this was a huge problem. When I published the book, uh, you know, the, the, the question on people's minds in Silicon Valley was, we have this great technology, how do we get people to use it? And uh, so my idea was, well, let's look at the best in the business. Who are the people who are really good at changing user behavior and figure out how to democratize these ideas, these techniques so that we can build apps to help people exercise more and create healthy habits around money and uh, community and, and more productivity at work. That was the real idea behind Hooked because it was on nobody's mind that we could overuse these technologies. That was nobody's problem. Sure. And then uh, I noticed that this would be a problem very quickly after I wrote Hooked. I found actually, I, I was sitting with my daughter 
who was about five years old at the time. And uh, we had this daddy-daughter date. And we sat down together and we had this book. It was a daddy and me book. And uh, there were all these questions and activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And there was this question, I remember very clearly, was if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? Mm. And I don't remember what she said, but I do remember that when I looked up for my phone, she wasn't there anymore. She had gotten the hint that she was less important than whatever no. I was looking at. <laughs> and she said, okay, bye. She left. My heart sinks. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't even know that she left the room. And so that's why if you ask me today what superpower I would want, I would want the power to be indistractable. And that's where this title comes from. This, this moniker, this identity, this skill, this what I call the skill of the century of how do we do what we say we're going to do? This is an age-old question. Now, technology uh, and people's fears around technology have re-enlightened this, this discussion, but it's an age-old question of why don't we do what we say we're going to do, right? We know we shouldn't eat that chocolate cake. We do. We, we, uh, we know we should exercise. We don't do what we say we're going to do. We know we should you know, get to work and do the thing that's most hard, right? We should do that presentation or that hard assignment we don't want to do right now, but we find ourselves on email or Slack channels or whatever. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? That's the big question. And so um, I started this exploration after that incident with my daughter. I thought I was going to write unhooked. Like, hey, I wrote hooked. Oh my God, it's so manipulative that I need to write unhooked. And so as part of the research for what I thought was going to be a mea culpa, <laughs> I read every book on the topic that I could possibly find about technology, distraction, addiction, all this stuff. And they all basically said the same thing, that the solution is, the, is to get rid of the technology. The problem, the, the reason we're addicted to technology is because of technology, right? Mm. Not so much. <laughs> I tried all these techniques. I tried digital detoxes and I tried, you know, I, I got myself a, a 1995 word processor uh, with no internet connection. Mm. And I got myself a feature phone that had no apps. Sure. And uh, I sat down at my desk to do my work without any of these technologies. And then I realized, oh, look at that. There's that book I've been meaning to read. Or, oh, there's the, you know, I probably clean off my desk. It's kind of messy. Or I should take out the trash. And I kept getting distracted. And so the more I explored the deeper psychology of distraction, I realized that this is not a new problem, that Socrates and Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago, and it's part of the human condition. And we haven't learned how to put distraction in its place when it comes to the latest gadgets, the latest technologies. And so it was only you know, from this very interesting vantage point of, you know, I understand how these companies build their, their technologies. I understand distraction from the inside out sure. <laughs> because I've been at these companies. I've, I understand how they work. I understand the deeper technology. I taught at Stanford for many years how to hook people. And I also know how to make sure we can get the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. So the yeah. message I want to get out there is an empowering message, uh, is that uh, there, there is so much that we can do to make sure that, that uh, we put technology and distraction in its place. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and so because we're going to offer up some tangible strategies of how people cannot be distracted, but like you just talked about Plato, Socrates have been talking about this for centuries. Right. And so what is distraction? Like, yeah. how can we understand that on a deeper level? I because love it. one thing that you also talked about is like, not necessarily just the pings, rings and dings of the moment distractions, but being distracted from our deeper goals and missions and things that are kind of valuable to us and that we know, but we just get off course there. So what, it, what right. is distraction? What is, it's a great question. And that's actually the first place to start is what's the definition of distraction? What does that even mean? Yeah. And so I define distraction as the opposite of traction. Traction is any action that is in line with what you want to do. Anything you do with intent. 
The opposite of an action that you do with intent is something that takes you off track, something that distracts you. So traction, the opposite is distraction. Mm. And so that's really what we have to fight against. It's not, we have to stop having this, this, uh, this, this moral high ground of, oh, you know, video games are bad, but football is okay. <laughs> that uh, World of Warcraft is, is bad, but, you know, binging on Fox News is somehow fine, mm. right? If it's what you do with intent, if it's what you plan to do with your time, do it. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is when we do something against our better interests that we didn't plan for, that distracted us from what we really wanted to do. Even something as productive, you know, I hear this all the time, uh, I can't get anything done, I'm emailing all day long, right? If you're emailing, even though it sounds like it's productive, well, I need to be on email for work. Sure. If you planned to work on that big project, that big presentation, that thing that requires focus and, and reflection as opposed to constantly reacting, even something that seems productive is a distraction. Uh, and so it's really about spending your time with intent, planning what you're going to do, and then doing as you say. Being indistractable is, doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you're the kind of person who's as honest with themselves as they are with other people. You do what you say you're going to do in life. Very cool. And so how do we start by identifying the things that we want to do? If we have to be more intentional because mm -hmm. the places where we're spending our time, those people are being incredibly intentional. Mm -hmm. And they're also very, very smart to get us to do what they want. Where do we start if we want to actually start saying, here's what I want to get done? Right, right. So in this day and age, uh, if you don't plan your time, someone else will. If you leave these tech companies, and I'm telling you this from the inside, if you leave the time available, they're going to get you. These products are designed to hook you, right? And sometimes we can have these healthy habits, and that's why I wrote Hooked. I didn't write Hooked for Facebook and YouTube. They already knew these techniques for years and years. Uh, I wanted to democratize these ideas so that everybody could use these techniques to build healthy habits. But the fact is, if you don't plan your day, they're going to get you somehow. It's going to be Facebook. It's going to be Instagram. It's going to be something Trump said. It's going to be your kids. It's going to be your boss. Somebody's going to take up that time unless you decide what you're going to do with it. So there are four basic techniques. The, hook, the, the indistractable model has these four basic tactics. The first technique is about mastering internal triggers. Uh, it's about the fact that, you know, this is one of the revelations I made. It's the most important of the four is that distraction starts from within hmm. that all human behavior is motivated by the desire to escape discomfort. And that's probably a bit of unplugging from the matrix for a lot of folks, because we, you know, the traditional narrative is that motivation is about the desire for pleasure right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Mm. Turns out it's not true. That biologically speaking, what we're looking at is that all human behavior is, is uh, motivated by the desire to escape discomfort. Everything we do is about minimizing this uncomfortable sensation within us. Now we have physiological sensations. So when you're cold, that's not comfortable. You put on a coat. When you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs. That doesn't feel good. You eat. Uh, those are physiological sensations, home this homeostatic response. We also have psychological states that we seek to escape. When we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. Sure. When we're bored, we check whatever, YouTube, Reddit, stock prices, the news, whatever. So we constantly seek to escape discomfort. And that means that time management is pain management. Hmm. That if we don't understand how to deal with our discomfort, we will always find distraction. So the first step, this is a... a, a good chunk of the book is about learning to either deal with that problem, figure out the source of the discomfort and deal with it, or find methods to cope with that discomfort. Hmm. 
And just as a little sidebar here, I do not, uh, the solution is not more meditation and mindfulness. Not that there's anything wrong with meditation and mindfulness, but I talk about in the book very, very quickly, just one sentence in the book where I say, I'm not gonna tell you to do those things because lots of other people already have. <laughs> so it's not that they're bad techniques, but what else, right? Meditation, mindfulness doesn't work for everyone. Hmm. What else can you do? And so I, I draw from some really fantastic research from acceptance and commitment therapy, from cognitive behavioral therapy, of how we can use these same techniques that have been shown to be very, very effective uh, for dealing with distraction, for dealing with these internal triggers. The second step is about... Can we, before, oh, yeah, sure. before we move on to two, yeah. though, because I want to say that when you use that first line, which is that it's like all distraction is escaping discomfort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I saw it was a tweet a couple of weeks ago where I saw that. And immediately, I remember that I was it was a writing day for me and I had gotten distracted with something. Yeah. And it provided me with a lens where in the moment I went and I was like, what what is the discomfort or what is, I thought about it as in some of the men's work that we do with, with the Junto, we think about again, like viewing our experience through the emotion that's present, which is not our first reaction. And then when we identify like, Oh, I'm feeling anxious or angry here of like, what is the, what's the emotion underneath that? Of like what's happening. And it just provides a new lens to evaluate something. And so I looked at what I was doing there of like, why was I going to this phone of what is the feeling that I get when I'm struggling to write, to put words on the page and so I just looked at that and I was like, okay, here's the feeling that you're trying to avoid. Right. And then like you just talked about, now I was actually felt like I was dealing with a root. And I was just like, okay, so now I was aware of that and I was actually able to deal with it. And so I think it's really, it's a brilliant way to, to think about this and to bring new awareness to it. So. Right. And, and so the idea is that you're actually keeping track especially in the early days when this is a, a new behavior to notice those sensations, you're asking yourself, so when you get distracted, you're writing down what happened instead, sure. right? What did you do instead of the thing you planned to do? That's the distraction. And then you're, there's only three reasons why we get distracted. Either an internal trigger, those uncomfortable sensations, an external trigger, the pings, the dings, the rings, something in our environment that, that pulls us off track, or we have a scheduling problem that we didn't plan accordingly. Because remember, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Hmm. So even though the human brain is full of foibles and biases and heuristics that take us off track, and we do all kinds of, you know, as Dan Ariely says, we're predictably irrational, we can take steps in advance yeah. to make sure we don't fall off track. Totally. So it's completely debatable whether there is such a thing as free will. Yeah. There is no debate that we don't have that we have free choice. We can plan ahead so that we don't get distracted in the future. Yeah. And so that's where you know the, the, this idea of if you keep getting distracted, right? If you keep the, the the making the same plans, expecting different results, that's insanity. You know. So the idea here is, what can we do to make sure we don't get distracted in the in the future? Can we learn if it's an internal trigger? Can we learn new ways to cope with that? discomfort totally. if it's an external trigger how do we hack back these external triggers and if it's a planning problem how can we make sure that we have enough time in our day to do the things we plan to do and not get taken off track yeah absolutely and i almost go back to like i hope when people read this book that they think about it so far out of the pings rings and dings and into just all these other areas of like the one that comes to mind for me is in like weight loss and dieting about how I had this this realization. I spent uh, about a year working with my mom actually on on this diet regimen, and we we would send each other photos of what we were eating every day for six months, just bringing more awareness to what those decisions were, and also talking about like the feelings that were there as we had urges, and just bringing more awareness to that, so that we wouldn't just subconsciously do that and learn nothing from it, or become aware of like the totality of our experience was was so powerful. And then I remember that I had this this new revelation recently again of like I, I just had a week where I just ate like shit. Mm. And I remember 
someone like had cake at our house and I was like, I want to eat that cake. And I was like, I so don't want to eat that cake, but I do right now. And it just became aware of what exactly what you're talking about is that I'm, my body knows that in the moment that that cake is eating, that is going into my mouth, I won't feel the shitty feelings that I've accumulated from the past week. And so it's just for that one moment of not feeling the, the, the pain or the just discomfort that I had built up over the last week, my mind wanted to do it. And so it's so true is that I had to be aware of that to not actually give into it. And it's, it's interesting if you, there's some nuance around how you resist temptation that can really backfire. So it's almost like a rubber band. When you pull a rubber band and you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it, and then you let go of it, it doesn't go back to its resting place. It goes beyond that, Hmm. right? It, it, it's a whiplash effect kind of, it just goes, you know, it goes, it, it shoots across the room. And that's actually what happens when we resist temptation in the wrong way. Wow. When we tell ourselves, don't, 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 okay, fine. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. It goes from the desire to escape discomfort to pleasure. If you think about cigarettes, there's a lot of controversy around how nicotine works in the brain. And so part of what we're seeing in the latest research is that the act of denying ourselves something is so uncomfortable that if you have no relief valve, the act of giving in feels all of a sudden so great. I mean, if you, you know, if you take a drag off a cigarette, it tastes like shit. It doesn't, <laughs> it's not great. I mean, you get, sure. there is effect. There certainly is, you know, a little bit of buzz that you feel. Yeah. But is it good? Is it bad? That's totally subjective. Mm. It's really about, if you look at the heart of these addictions, it's really not about, you know, we think about uh, people who are really pathologically addicted. An addiction is not about the high. It's about the relief of the lows. It's about escaping the discomfort, Yeah. right? People who are really addicted, whether it's heroin or uh, sex addiction or whatever it is, it's not about feeling good. It's about feeling not bad. Wow. And so that's where that relief of the discomfort suddenly, oh, finally, I don't, have to, I don't have to fight myself anymore. And believe it or not, the same thing goes with distraction. So my example, so I actually used to be clinically obese. And I remember when he's um, in very good shape though, for <laughs> you can't see him right now but i remember when when i first started dieting um i did it i did it wrong right because a diet but for most people what's a diet okay well you know uh do this and this or this buy this and this date and you'll be your max goal nobody ever talks about or you'll be at your weight goal nobody ever talks about what happens after that right so okay i'm gonna do a 30-day uh, uh fast food uh, detox, right? No fast food for 30 days. Well, what do you think happened on day 31? <laughs> you know, I totally. go crazy. Sure. And that's, we see this again and again. This is why we know that diets do nothing but te- temporary diets teach the body to learn to store calories, to store for, for in case of scarcity. And so why would we expect anything different when it comes to technology use? That when people tell you do a digital detox, hmm. right? Just stop it for 30 days yeah. without giving you the fundamental skills to deal with why you are using to this extent, they're really sending you down the wrong path. Sure. It's a fad diet. And we know what happens with fad diets. Unless you deal with the reason you're overindulging, that, that, that negative behavior won't go away. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thank you for going a little bit deeper on that. And so I'll let you get back into number two. Oh yeah. You were on a path there. Okay. So the first step to the indistractable model, there's four steps. The first step is to master these internal triggers. And I give lots of techniques for how to do that. The second step is to make time for traction. We talked about traction and distraction. So traction are these actions, these things that we do 
that are with intent, what we wanted to do, the things that move us closer to our values, to being the kind of people we want to be. And so the the, the long and the short of it when it comes to making time for traction is all about planning your day. Hmm. It's about making sure that somebody else isn't stealing that time away from you. Uh, And this comes in in different domains. I call these the three life domains of things that you do for yourself, things that you do with others, and things that you do at work. And so it's really about for those three life domains, do I have time on my schedule to live up to my values? If you want to see what somebody is really about, not what they might talk about, not how they just talk a good game about what they value in life, but if you really want to see what they prioritize in their life, what their values are really about in terms of what they do, you take a look at where they spend their money and you take a look at where they spend their time. Hmm. And so that means that we have to make, we have to turn our values into time. Hmm. And if you don't put time, and I was horribly guilty of this, my family became what's called residual benefactors. This is a term I learned in business school. A residual benefactor is the chump who gets whatever's left over when a company is liquidated. Hmm. And for years, time with my wife, time with my family, time with my friends was whatever was left over after work. Wow. And this is part of our national epidemic of loneliness, particularly when it comes to men who have less rituals and less reason, you know, structured rituals. And now with the, with the decline of organized religion, with the de- decline of civic organizations, civic groups, men in particular have l- fewer occasions to formally get together with people. Right? It used to be, okay, the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, we're going to meet together and, and get together at, the, at those specific dates. We need to bring that back. We have to have time on our calendars to get together with the people who know us and who we want to know better. Yeah. So that, that has to do with ourselves, right? Time to make sure we have time on our schedules for the gym or to listen to an audiobook or to do whatever it is that you want to do to grow yourself, time to grow your relationships, uh, and time to uh, spend time, productive time at work. So that means we literally have to synchronize our schedules. This is one of the best things you can do to be more productive at your job is to sit down with the stakeholders at work your boss, your colleagues, and say, look, here's how I'm going to spend my time, right? We, here's, here's where I'm going to do the different tasks that I need to do. Don't believe this myth of the to-do list. So many people, myself included, think this BS around, well, if I just write everything down on a to-do list, it'll magically get done. And it's rubbish. <laughs> it's only half of what you have to do. The other half is to actually make the time to do those things on your schedule. Sure. So this is the, I'm giving you the very quick overview. It's the tip of the iceberg in terms of how do we do all that. Yeah, sure. And then there's all kinds of questions that arise about, well, how do I sync up with stakeholders? How do I sync up with my family and friends, et cetera? But the big picture here is, is make time for traction. The third step is to... Ha- I, I got oh, to say yeah. one thing before we move go on to three it, again, of the amount of advice and insight that I've I've taken in around to-do lists mm-hmm. and how much of it I've, I've integrated into my life and that it's been effective. But again, to think about like what are our values of work as compared to family and even potentially like, you know, children, uh, romantic relationship. And the idea of I've never actually put those things on my to-do list yeah. of like what is the time that I'm intentionally spending with them. Right. right. Like, I would- wake up every single morning and I have – Three most important things Work I want stuff. to get done today. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. then I have the two people who mean more to me than anything. Right. Who are such a priority, but they've never made it onto the to-do me list. Me too, buddy. Me too. <laughs> I'm telling you. I mean, this was – so here's what really uh, – talk about what, what was a game changer in my marriage. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of data that shows that in heterosexual couples, even when both people work outside the home – women still take on a disproportionate share of household admin duties. Hmm. 
Uh, and this is this is a persistent trend. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm I'm a woke feminist. I, I you know, I'm, I, I share household responsibilities. I believe in the value of equality in my marriage. But then when I actually sat down to you know, evaluate how much time I was spending doing household admin duties versus how much time my wife was doing admin household duties, yeah. it was like on a different scale. And so, you know, and, and we would fight about this stuff. We would get into arguments night after night. And I didn't understand. I was like, what? I just, if you want me to do something, just ask me, right? If things are so hard, if you need me to help, just tell me to help. Yeah. Well, the thing I didn't realize is that that process of asking me to help is work. For her. And so we, we solve this and we become so much closer for it. Every week we sit down together and we synchronize. So we, we looked at all the things that need to get done. Yeah. And this became much easier after the first time. The first time was a little bit of work. It took an hour or so. After that, now it's literally 15 minutes. Because I know my household responsibilities. Every Sunday, one of my responsibilities is to cook the vegetables for the week. Right? We do this like little meal thing for the entire week. So my daughter is fed. My wife is fed. I'm fed. That's my duty. Right, it's on my plate and it's in my calendar for when that's going to get done. Yeah, and so that's synchronizing at home, at work, and for ourselves in terms of what we want to do for our, our our bodies and our minds. It has to be on your calendar. Super important. Wow, tangible. I love it. On to three. <laughs> yeah. So the third step is hack back the external trigger. So this is what most people think about when it comes to distraction. They think about the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that that can lead us to distraction. Now. They can also lead us to traction. So if you have a notification on your phone that says, hey, it's time to work out, it's time to go to that lunch you've been planning, whatever it is, and it leads you to something you plan to do, well, that's traction, that's terrific. The idea is here is that we have to ask ourselves, of the external triggers in our life, which of them are serving us and which of them are we serving? Hmm. That's that simple question we have to ask ourselves, kind of like the Marie Kondo, you know, does it bring me joy? And my question is, is it serving me or am I serving it? And it's not only about our technology. What I learned is that, you know, when it comes to proportional shares of where are people distracted, certainly phones and devices play their role. But it's also old tech or no tech that distracts us. For example, one of the biggest sources of distraction in the workplace is open floor plan offices where people just walk on by and say, hey, I want to talk to you for a second. Or what about this project? And that's, that's fine. We need those opportunities to chit chat with people, except when we're trying to focus, right? There's no way that you can solve complex problems without thinking, without the time and space to focus on what you're working on. So I actually put in the book, in the middle of the book, there's this uh, cardstock sign that you can fold up and put on your screen, this big red sign that says, I'm indistractable right now, please come back a little bit later, because headphones don't cut it, right? People just put on headphones and they think that it doesn't work. Totally. <laughs> you still get distracted. So I talk about all the things that you can do to hack back these external triggers that don't serve you, whether it's how to hack back meetings, how to hack back group chat, how to hack back email. I save about 90% of the time I used to spend on email now because I've adopted many of these techniques. Yeah. And so with the one that I think is most prevalent in so many people's lives and where so many people have tried different techniques to reclaim their efficiency or just sanity in this area of their life, email. Yeah. What, what would you give people as a tangible piece of advice to approach email more thoughtfully, more intentionally. Yeah, yeah. So uh, TNT. TNT is an equation. <laughs> I, I, you're, so many anecdotes. It's so tight, man. I'm loving it. Oh, there's so much more. I, 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 I mean, we could talk for hours here, but there's. I tried to make the book, you know, so I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm an entrepreneur first, right? And yeah. then I started writing books. So I understand how valuable people's time is. So I, I really wanted to make this book sure. full of lots of insights. So when it comes to email, remember TNT. T is the, to big T is the total amount of time spent on email. 
equals the number of emails you get, that's the N, N stands for number, times the number of emails you get, right? So the total time spent on email equals the number of emails times, uh, multiplied by the time spent per email, which means that it's basically a function of two things, right? How much time do you spend per email and how, how many emails do you get? So you can break this down into a few areas in terms of how do you spend less total time on area uh, on email by splitting it up into these two parts of the of the function. So I'll give you just just uh, one technique that I, that has really changed my life, and that is so this came out of the research I did for my first book, Hooked, around variable rewards. And variable rewards are this this idea that came out of the work of B.F. Skinner the father of operant conditioning, and he found that when a stimulus was given, a reward was given on an intermittent basis, right? When there was mystery, unpredictability about when a pigeon would receive a food pellet in his case, then the pigeon responded more times to that stimulus, right? And so this is what makes slot machines so habit-forming. It's what makes social media feeds so habit-forming. This variability, this uncertainty keeps us engaged. When it comes to email, what I found was that the, the, where our time is most wasted with email is not the responding part. The response is the response. The part where we waste the most time with email is the checking and specifically the rechecking of email because it is a variable reward machine, right? What's in the email? When does it need a response? What's it say? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Who's it from? There's all this variability just like a slot machine. So if you want to cut down the amount of time you spend per each email, you only want to touch it two times. The first time you open that email, the only thing you need to understand when you, before you close it is when does this need a reply? And that answer, it only has, the, the answer is only two possible things. Either it requires a reply today or it requires a reply sometime this week. If it doesn't require a reply at all, delete it or archive it, right? So then there's other two categories. What you do, you then label that email. Many people use labeling incorrectly, but labeling a lot of people use based on the subject matter. They say, okay, this is home, this is work, this is whatever. No, no, the only thing you wanna label each email by the first time you open it is when does it need a reply, either today or this week. Then you have time in your calendar per the last step of making time for traction in your calendar when you will reply to those emails, either today for things that are actually urgent that need a reply immediately, or you have a big old chunk of time. For me, it's message Mondays. Every Monday I have four hours that I do nothing but you know, flush out all the emails that, that require response this week. That is a, a game changer. Why? Because then you're not constantly checking and rechecking and rechecking and rechecking, opening an email. So, well, what does it say again? What does it need to reply? Is this urgent? Oh crap, I missed the deadline. You know that you only respond to today's emails every day. And then the ones that can wait a week, you'll reply to later. The beauty of this, it's twofold. One, you're not constantly checking all day, so you can stay focused on what you really need to do. And two, it's amazing when you give people a little bit of time to figure stuff out for themselves, it's amazing how many emails become irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just let it simmer for a little bit as opposed to playing this ping pong game. This is why I hate the idea of inbox zero every day. People think that, you know, that if I just get emails out of my inbox, then they'll go away. No, when you send more emails, you also will receive more emails. Mm. So sometimes the right thing to do is to slow them down. Don't send them back so quickly. Reserve them for when you have time in your schedule to do that weekly check as opposed to you know checking chronologically or, or whatever else. Amazing. TNT. 
T. Right. All right. And back to you. <laughs> yeah. So we got, okay. So we had uh, master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers. The fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. So pacts are what's called a pre-commitment. It's about how do we do something in advance when we know we might get distracted. And so this comes from the, the, the technique is an ancient technique. It comes from the story of Ulysses in the Odyssey, this 2,500-year-old story. Ulysses is sailing his ship his, and his crew past the island of the Sirens. And the Sirens sing this mythical, magical song that anyone who hears uh, becomes intoxicated with their voice and wants to crash their ship onto the island of the Sirens and dies. Now, mm. Ulysses knows this is going to happen. And he's, he, he knows that he might go off track. He knows that he might do something that he doesn't want to do. He might get distracted. So what does he do? He tells his entire crew to put beeswax in their ears so they won't hear the siren song. And he instructs them to bind him to the mast of the ship. And he tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, don't let me go. And it works. Because of his insight, because of his forethought, he's not tempted to be impulsive in the moment. He's thought ahead. And so this is what we need to do. This is the last step. By the way, this is not the first step. <laughs> this is the last thing we do after we've mastered internal triggers, after we've made time for traction, after we've hacked back external triggers. Then we use these packs to make sure that we don't do something we don't want to do. And so there are three types. There are effort packs, price packs, and identity packs. Mm. And so there's a whole methodology around how we can use either effort, costs through price, or through our identity to make sure we, we make a pre-commitment to not do something we don't want to do. Very cool. So those were, again, they were price, effort, and... Identity. Identity. Yeah. Can you break those down a little bit deeper? Sure. So, yeah. yeah. So a, an effort pact is something that we do that requires a, a pre-commitment that we make that in order to break that pre-commitment, we have to expend a little bit of effort. So for example, in my household, uh, every night at 10 p.m., my internet shuts off. Hmm. I used to actually do this. I bought a, a, a $5 timer that plugs into the wall and whatever was plugged into that timer would turn off automatically. And so my monitor, my router, all that stuff. My wife is going to make us get this as soon as she hears it. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Why? Because I want to prioritize sleep on my schedule. It says 10 PM, go to bed. Hmm. (laughs) Right? So to be honest, my sex life used to suffer because every night my wife and I would be diddling around on our devices as opposed to being together, let alone getting some sleep. And now since we've instituted this, when the internet shuts off at 10 PM, it reminds us, oh, okay, what we really want to do, we made this pre-commitment to go to bed. Sure. So that's an effort pack. Why is it an effort pack? Because if I really wanted to, I could unplug the router, you know, replug it in or use my phone or do something else. It, but that requires effort, right? That would require a bit of work for me to, uh, to break that pact, okay? So that's an effort. And there's lots of other effort packs. That's just one example. A price pact is where there's some kind of cost to doing something you don't want to do. So for example, uh, to finish my manuscript... Uh, I'd done tons of research, and to finish my manuscript, to actually get it across the finish line, I took a wager of $10,000 with my buddy Mark, and we shook hands and said, if you don't finish your wager by this date, uh, that it was January 1st, then you owe me $10,000. Guess what? I finished the book, (laughs) and I kept my money. Another thing I do is every day, uh, I have the first thing I see when I go into my closet to get dressed, I have this calendar on my wall, and there's a $100 bill taped to the date, to today's date. And I have two choices to make every day. I can either burn the $100 bill, or I can go to the gym and burn some calories. Yeah. It's called the burn or burn technique. Yeah. So that's a price pack. Now, of course, people say, oh, $100, you can't burn $100. Of course you can. If you do what you say you're going to do. But again, that's the last step. That's, that's where pre-commitments, this, this price 
uh, of this pact, make sure I do what it is I sure. really want to do. Yeah. And then finally, there's the identity pact, which to me is the most interesting of the three. And this has to do with how the way we think about ourselves, the way we define ourselves, can change our behaviors. And so this is, to, to learn how to do this, we really have to look at organized religion. Uh, and what I found in my research is that there are certain people who don't have to expend willpower to do what they want to do, to make sure they're not distracted. And when you think about people who are observant of a religion, right? An Orthodox Jew does not say, hmm, should I eat some bacon? Should I not eat some bacon? A vegetarian doesn't say, ooh, I kind of want some steak today. A devout Muslim doesn't say, ooh, should I have a shot of tequila or not, right? No, they don't do that because of their identity. I am a vegetarian. I am an uh, Orthodox Jew. I am a devout Muslim. Whatever it might be, their identity shapes their decisions because they have made a pact to be that person. Yeah. And that's a very, very powerful tool that we can use uh, and is part of the reason why I call the book Indistractable, right? Mm. This superpower of I am indistractable. It's part of the moniker that we need to identify ourselves as just as, you know, it's no stranger than you know, unusual garb that people wear or unusual traditions that people have. Why can't we have a tradition around, nope, I'm sorry, I don't answer my phone past seven o'clock because I'm indistractable. Or, yep, I put up this little sign on my monitor screen because I'm indistractable. And so it's part of creating that moniker. One of the best things, by the way, you can do to establish an identity is to be an apostle. So we all know that in organized religion, almost every religion has uh, proselytizes, right? It just seeks converts. And so the, the layperson description of why this happens is because we want more people to enter the flock. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's exactly true. The reason that every religion has uh, this command, not every religion, most religions have this commandment to go bring others into the flock is because it reinforces the identity of the person convincing the other person. Yeah. So there's this joke, how do you know someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? And you can <laughs> sure. substitute whatever you want. You know, how do you know someone's keto? How do you know someone's CrossFit? How do you know someone's whatever? Sure. They'll tell you. Why? Because it confirms their identity the more they try and convert you. Yeah. And we can use that ourselves by teaching other people this methodology, even if we're not perfect, even if sometimes we fall off track, we get distracted. By telling other people this philosophy, we are cementing our own identity and making more likely we'll stick to doing what we say we're going to do. Yeah, it's it's so powerful that you're you've ended the the fortitude approach on identity. I was working with a an addiction specialist here in New York, and he was working on a TEDx talk. And when I asked him, I was like, "So you're helping people to stop using drugs?" And I was like, "What's like the grander? Like, what are you helping people do outside of just treating substance abuse?" And he was like, "Well." I'd say that the, the biggest umbrella would be this is behavior change. Mm -hmm. And then what he talked about is just, again, he, he called that, I think, the identity model of change and said it's like humans do the types of things that align with the type of person they think that they are. So true. And, and this is, I, I'm, I'm really glad you bring this back up because this is kind of full circle with where we started. I, I about, couldn't agree more, yeah. About the message that I think a lot of people out there are uh, spreading around technology. That, you know, you asked me what lesson I want people to know. It's that when we believe that technology is addicting us, when we believe that it's hijacking our brain, when we believe there's nothing we can do about it, we are literally playing into these companies' hands. Why? Because of this exact idea that we act according to the identity we have created. So when we say technology is hijacking our brains, we believe it. Yeah. It's called learned helplessness. And so there's lots of things that these technology companies do wrong. Don't get me wrong. They deserve scrutiny. They probably deserve regulation. But when it comes to this one area, of do we have the power 
over these things? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely we do. Unless we believe we don't. <laughs> if you believe, well, my kid is just acting crazy because of these video games, or my husband or my wife is you know, just addicted to, to social media, then it becomes true. You stop doing something about it. And then it becomes really a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as we're, we're coming towards the, the end of our time, and so there are a few concepts that you had touched on that I wanted to make sure that we could, we could get to. And, you know, we've talked about, again, a lot of really practical ideas, things that people can integrate into their lives. And you talked about the, how we can use willpower kind of like incorrectly, almost like overuse it, right? And so, like, what, do we, what is the right way to start? So if someone's going to basically step away from this podcast and they're going to go and take the first step, like, what, what would you, where would you have them start? I, I wish there was a simple answer. Um, there isn't really a simple answer because I think you need the four parts. Yeah. You need to understand all four elements of it. I mean, I think the hardest of the four is is mastering internal triggers. So I, I don't want to be too self-promotional, but I, I hope people will, will check out the book. Uh, you don't have to buy it. You can go pirate it somewhere. I don't really care, but get, <laughs> get the material somewhere uh, because it's it's you, you, this is not something that will just come to you. <laughs> I spent five years in the trenches uh, with psychologists, with researchers, experimenting on myself, try, t- t- trying every technique I could figure out to figure out what's true and what's not true. And there's a lot of junk science out there. I'll give you one example. This idea of uh, that willpower is a, a limited resource. And this is, this is basically folk psychology these days. There was this study around ego depletion. And this, this study basically found that uh, if you expend willpower, it's like a gas tank you run out of it eventually and there was a magical way to restore willpower and that was by drinking something sugary right hmm. in this case the study they gave people lemonade well some other psychologists looked at the study and said i don't, I don't really know about that <laughs> i'm not so sure and it turns out they can't replicate it this study has not replicated so this whole idea of what's called ego depletion is is bunk hmm. except for a study that found that ego depletion does exist for one group of people. This was done by uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford. So if you've read Mindset, you, you know her work is fantastic. She found that ego depletion does exist for a certain group of people. And those people are the people who believe ego depletion exists. Mm. <laughs> so wow. that means, I mean, talk about the power of identity. If you were the kind of person who said, oh, I'm spent. I've got no more willpower. Okay, let me go ahead and indulge. Yeah. Then it became true. And so we have to stop thinking about willpower as this limited resource. It's much healthier to think about it like a feeling, right? You don't say, I run out of happiness. You don't say, oh, I I ran out of joy. I ran out of sadness. It's a feeling and feelings crest and then pass. And so that's a much healthier way to think about our ability to do what we say we're going to do, to use willpower, not like it's a limited resource, not like it's a gas tank, not like that we deserve to indulge, but that this is a feeling, and if we know how to cope with those feelings, they pass just like any other feeling. Yeah, I think it's, you know, when we think about identity, it's, uh, it's so powerful to give people kind of an anchor into how they start to actually develop the identity that they want, to acknowledge the, the values that align with the type of person that they really think they are as opposed to just being cultured by external influences and right. so much there. And so, you know, if you think about for you right now, like why this has become your work, what about this work as an extension of what's important to you? I think that um, uh, something that I wish I would see in more folks uh, is 
taking the time to be introspective. That it is a an unsung secret to life is to take time and think, right? Not just meditate. Meditation has its place, but to think. You know, we are so uh, quick triggered to go find a guru, go find a book, go find someone who has the answers. It turns out most of the answers are right here, right? They're within us. We just have to think through those issues, right? And it could be that you do need to go find a resource. You do need to go see if your assumptions and your hypotheses of the world are correct. But for most people, I feel like, and this was myself included, we're so busy, we're so harried, we're so, you know, running all over the place reacting to stuff that we get no time to reflect on things. And so part of the reason why I think it's so important to become indistractable is because that is the only way that we can sit down and focus and reflect and be introspective and think through what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our families, what's going on in our businesses, uh, and find those answers by, by just thinking. It's amazing. I mean, my, my MO is to write things out, right? I, I write way more than I publish because that's how I process. Yeah. And so we can't do that if we're constantly reacting to stuff, you know, constantly reacting to external triggers, the pings and dings and all these you know, stuff happening in our world. We need to make that time to also reflect on our lives. Yeah. And I think it's such a powerful reflection to just for people to ask themselves, do I enjoy the time I spend alone? Right. And if the answer is no, like, what does that say about our discomfort and inability to be with the thoughts, the feelings that are inherent in our experience? Right. Yeah. And then go a layer deeper. Well, why? Yeah. Right. And then a layer deeper. Why? <laughs> what else is going on? Uh, and so it's, it's again, I'm, you know, the, a lot of times we look for simple answers. And so this, this, the, the, there's always exceptions. The, the, the answer to every complicated question in life is it depends. <laughs> and, you know, so for some people, introspection is wonderful. For some people, you know, they ruminate and it's not good. But for, for, for me, at least, uh, my problem was that I just was having trouble finding the time to ask myself these important questions and think through them. And I think that's something that I've been much happier for now that I've become indistractable is uh, that I have that time to think. I'm, I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been before. I'm more satisfied with my life. I'm, I have a better relationship with my kid, with my wife, uh, and, and I'm more productive at work as, as a result of being able to do what it is I say I'm going to do. Yeah. And one final question before we leave is because a lot of entrepreneurs, small business owners listen to the show, and I, I've been taking this all in through the individual lens of how I'm going to apply this to my own life, but also... I want to just introduce the context of how this is integrated in a, a work culture yeah. and an environment because I think it's so relevant there, right? Totally. It's, what are your thoughts there about how prevalent this is in the workplace today and how we kind of step out of that individual lens to the manager, the leader, the business owner lens? It's a terrific question. So about half of Indistractable is about things that we as an individual can do. Yeah. And we should definitely do those things because that's the easiest things <laughs> to, to change is things that start with ourselves. But, but let's be realistic here. If you do everything I tell you to do, you do these four steps of you know, master your internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs, but then your boss decides to call you at 9.30 and says, ooh, I really need you to get on email right now, well, what do you do? You're going to lose your livelihood. <laughs> and I realize that. And so the other half of the book, the second half of the book, is about how uh, distraction uh, is a part of our relationships. So there's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. There's a section about how to have indistractable relationships. And there's a section about how to have an indistractable workplace. And particularly when it comes to this workplace, remember we talked about these internal triggers and how all behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. And what we see today is that the modern 
workplace is full of psychological discomfort. <laughs> People are not doing well when it comes to uh, their work life. And a big part of that is that many people work in an organizational culture that has the confluence of two factors. Now, these two factors have been studied extensively as these two preconditions that lead to anxiety and depression disorder, that there's a type of work environment that literally drives people crazy. And that work environment is when there is a confluence of high expectation and low control. When you have those two factors in a workplace, it is correlated with depression and anxiety disorder. It's a workplace that drives people crazy. And it's a huge problem. And so part of it is, you know, the, the, what, what I found in my research is that even though technology tends to get the blame, people say, well, you know, technology causes technology addiction. See, th this is why we're all, you know, hopelessly connected to our workplaces because of the technology. There's actually no correlation between how much tech people use and how harried and, and distracted they are. Yeah. It turns out that the companies that you would think would be the most uh, distracted and addicted to technology aren't necessarily. For example, I profile Slack. Yeah. Uh, Slack is this technology that many people blame, this group chat app that many people blame for constantly tethering, tethering them to work. But at Slack, it's not a problem because the company has this company culture, this ethos. In fact, they have a big neon sign on their wall at their company headquarters that says, work hard. That's, that was my timer. Uh, that says, work hard and go home. And, and the, it's not about, okay, well, everybody put up a sign that says that at work. No, no, no. The idea is how did that sign get up there? They have a work environment where people have agency. They have control. They listen to their employees. They give them what's called psychological safety to raise their hand and say, hey, something's not working for me here. And so that's the real defining factor. The re if, if your company has a problem with distraction, if people are always checking their devices all day long at work and can't get anything done, that's the canary in the coal mine. Hmm. Distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. Can you and say that's that, the, could you say that one more time? Yeah, Distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. That that's the real problem, the root cause. The technology is the proximal cause. And that's really what the whole book is about. It's about this deeper reason for why we get distracted. Not just the tools at the surface, not the proximal cause, but the root cause. And the root cause at work if, is, is this symptom, or is this cause, this root cause of a, a dysfunctional culture where people can't speak up, where people can't voice their concerns. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it there so that all the managers who are very <laughs> like uh, introspective in and, this and moment. And there's solutions. Yeah. I don't want to just leave it with yeah, a, a terrible uh, prognosis. There are solutions to fixing that. Yeah. And, and guys, so that is our time with Nir. But Nir, I just want to say it's been uh, a pleasure sitting down with you again with not only bringing kind of the, the academic rigor and research that you do, but just the practical insights and things that people are really going to be able to do even from a 60-minute podcast. So uh, for people who want to dig a little bit deeper, I've, I've shared several of your articles online. Your blog is brilliant, Near and Far, yeah. right? Yep, nearandfar.com. So it's N-I-R-N-Far.com. Right. Exactly. And then tell us a little more about where people can find you online if they want to dig deeper. Yeah, so if you're interested in the topic of indistractable, you can go to nearandfar.com backslash indistractable. Uh, near and Far is spelled like my name, N-I-R-N-Far.com. I've got tons of resources there, a workbook and a mini course and all kinds of stuff to, to get you started, uh, for all kinds of downloads as well. And so that's the best place to to get started cool and we're going to go ahead and link the book and some of the the great giveaways that they have on the site in the show notes so check those out but near thanks for the time my pleasure thank you andrew